due to adult content. Parental discretion is advised. To begin. To begin. Are you watching closely? How to start. I just, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? In Life Itself, a memoir, Roger Ebert begins. I was born inside the movie of my life. I was born a poor black child. The visuals were before me. I was born in it. The audio surrounded me. Molded by it. The plot unfolded inevitably, but not necessarily. I don't remember how I got into the movie, but it continues to entertain me. At first, the frames flicker without connection. We all are born with a certain package. We are who we are. Where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. It lets you understand a little bit more about different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people who are sharing this journey with us. Here's the deal. You just give me the facts. Just the facts. Only the facts. Breathe. Focus. Keep it simple. No, no, no. No doubt. No doubt. Okay. Welcome to Cock and Bull Movie Talk. What used to be a Tristram Shandy story. In which, apparently, obviously, we don't talk about Tristram Shandy minute by minute. But isn't that the point? Good lord, what is this story all about? Cock and Bull story. Here's your host, me, Professor Robert E. G. Black. It is too late. The line is not an independent sentence, but a fragment of the preceding paragraph, which concludes with a shorter dash. The ambiguous grammatical status of this line is simultaneously a sentence and a paragraph, but also neither. It's foregrounded by its position on the page. Out of the ashes of Redrick's collapse rises a new mode of communication, a silence which the preacher allows to envelop his words and which becomes visually represented by the white space surrounding the center of this page. Christopher Fanning on Stern's page, Spatial Layout, Spatial Form, and Social Spaces in Tristram Shandy.
I did my best of the year last episode. I'm getting ready to do another pair of films, possibly by myself, before I have a guest to do another pair. And this show becomes a strange anomaly. A place where I deliberately built something without structure, pretending to be something with a lot of structure, about something with horribly complex structure that it's hard to identify because Tristram Shandy is such a long and complicated story. Told in parts that don't go together. Told in parts that do go together. Told in parts that wrap around each other in strange ways. I've only seen the film once. I haven't read the whole book. I started reading it. I read most of the comic book adaptation, which is much, much shorter. effort to read the whole thing because I'm like, this show isn't going to be about the film. It's going to be about avoiding talking about the film, avoiding talking about the book, avoiding talking about so much. I don't think the film does a good job of adapting the book itself, but that's also not the point. Like this show, it doesn't do a good job of breaking down the film. I focused on it for what, one episode a while back, picked apart that scene, Pretended this was an ongoing show, movie by minute proper. But is it? No. But is it not? Also no. Because what else are these shows but ways to explore the ideas behind the films? And the idea behind the film and the idea behind the book is that all of these little pieces of everything go together and make us what we are. In the Steven Spielberg movie, E.T., why is the alien brown? No reason. In Love Story... Why did the two characters fall madly in love with each other? No reason. In Oliver Stone's JFK, why is the president suddenly assassinated by some stranger? No reason. In the excellent Chainsaw Massacre by Toby Hooper, why don't we ever see the characters go to the bathroom or wash their hands like people do in real life? Absolutely no reason. Worse, in The Pianist, by Polanski? How come this guy has to hide and live like a bum when he plays the piano so well? Once again, the answer is no reason. I could go on for hours with more examples. The list is endless. You probably never gave it a thought. But all great films, without exception, contain an important element of no reason. And you know why? Because life itself is filled with no reason. Why can't we see the air all around us? No reason. Why are we always thinking? 
no reason. Why do some people love sausages and other people hate sausages? No fucking reason. Come on, don't waste your time explaining that garbage. Let's go. Just a minute, let me finish. Ladies, gentlemen, the film you are about to see today is an homage to the no reason, that most powerful element of style. But it's not no reason. And it's not everything happens for a reason either, because that's trite, it's simplistic, it's mm -hmm. troublesome. Reduces everything to there's a reason this is happening so you don't have to worry about it, and you should worry about it when it goes wrong. Roger Ebert, 2001, The Monolith and the Message. Good parables explain themselves. After you have read the story of Lazarus in the Bible, you don't need anyone to explain it to you. The same is true, I believe, of Stanley Kubrick's parable, 2001, A Space Odyssey. It contains the answers to all the questions it advances. Why, then, is the film already infuriated and confused so many audiences? I went to see it again last week and was surrounded by the mumble of many conversations. Some of the whispers were trying to figure out what was going on. Others were just killing time. Making up grocery lists, I guess. After the film was over, someone suggested that maybe MGM should require an IQ test before allowing people into the theater. I can understand that point of view. If people do not have the courtesy to shut up during a film, they should at least be segregated into special Saturday kitty matinees, no matter how advanced their years. Silence and attention are especially useful during 2001 A Space Odyssey because here for once is a film that makes a total statement. You cannot really understand part of it until you have seen all of it. Then afterwards you can go back and fill in the missing places. But while it is there on the screen, you should simply let it happen to you. No questions. No whispers. Let the movie have its chance. Because 2001 needs to be seen this way. I think it will have a better chance with younger audiences. Kubrick himself speculated that his film wouldn't have much luck with the audiences raised on linear movies. That is, on movies that follow a plotted storyline from beginning to end. In a linear movie, you never ask why John Wayne wants to kill the bad guys. Although perhaps you should. But in Kubrick's movie, there are questions harder to answer. What about that enormous black monolith, for example, which follows man through Kubrick's universe? The people who surrounded me the other night had lots of questions for each other about that monolith. Question. What's that big black monolith? Answer. It's a big black monolith. Question. Where did it come from? Answer from somewhere else. Question. Who put it there? Answer. Intelligent beings, since it has right angles, and nature doesn't make right angles on its own. Question. How many monoliths are there? Answer. One for every time Kubrick needs one in his film. Now, it would seem that these are obvious observations, but audiences don't like simple answers, I guess. They want the monolith to stand for something. Well, it does. It stands for a monolith without an explanation. It's the fact that man can't explain it that makes it interesting. If Kubrick had explained it, perhaps by having some little green men from Mars lowered into place, would that have been more satisfactory? Does everything need an explanation? Some people think so. I wonder how they endure looking at the stars. I get to 2001 through the blackness of the monolith, from the blackness of page 73 of Tristram Shandy. If you don't know of it, I think I may have mentioned it once on this show, once or twice. On the death of character York, there is a page that just is full of black ink, because... Why have words? Ed Simon. Ten ways to look at the color black. One of the most poignant of all passages in English literature occurs in the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy Gentleman, serially published between the years of 1759 and 1767, when its author Lawrence Stern wrote,
Such is the melancholic shade of the 73rd page of Tristram Shandy, the entirety of the paper taken up with black ink, when the very book itself mourns the death of an innocent but witty parson with the Shakespearean name, Yorick. Alas. Poor Yorick. Poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest of most excellent... A fellow of infinite jest. A fellow of infinite jest of most excellent excellent fancy. He has borne me on his back back a thousand times. A thousand times. A thousand times. Said Black Page appears after Yorick went to his doors, and closed them, and never opened them more, for it was that he died, as was generally thought, quite broken-hearted. I wasn't sure what to do with this episode. I needed something. I needed to go into a new pair of movies on my own, or I needed to have another distraction episode, an interlude. I thought of talking about the movies that were on my best of 2020 list and think about which ones might have fit in my bracket. There's a few that probably be up in this top 36. I was going to say 32. <laughs> Forgot my own bracket. But maybe they all are. I do the interlude episodes where I explain why each movie is my favorite. There's at least one on my top 36 that is not my favorite. You'll see why when I get to it. Spoilers. It's extremely loud and incredibly close. Yesterday I learned of a book called The Secret Astronomy of Tristram Shandy. I'll give you the publisher's description. The Secret Astronomy of Tristram Shandy is a book that reproduces over 100 self-reflexive black pages from multiple paperback editions and copies of Lawrence Stern's The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentlemen. When taken out of context and accumulated, these once playful visual metaphors reveal the printing inconsistencies of ink on paper, varying density, hickeys, oxidation spots, and fingerprints. The hidden nature of the page, that which was unread, can now be read. In this case, astronomical imagery is revealed, that of stars speckled across an inky blackness, or the soft haze and ripple of a galaxy. Since the 1760s, readers, printers, and publishers have been forced to grapple with the black pages of Stern's novel. The struggle with discovery, meaning, and craft is at the heart of the secret astronomy of Tristram Shandy. If you got some money to throw around and want to get me a copy, you can get it by contacting the artist at personallibraries at gmail.com. It's $70. I can't be bothered. <laughs> but I love the idea. I think I love the idea of Tristram Shandy more than I love the experience of it. Reading it, it was too much. It reminded me, or rather, Mark Danielewski should remind you of Lawrence Stern, in that he's clearly going for that pretentious over-detailed, over-designed thing that I love in a film, but in a book has to hit just right. House of Leaves hit right when I needed that sort of thing to read. Even by his next book, I think it was his next book. Well, it was his next book after I read House of Leaves, because I know I went to a signing of Only Revolutions. I couldn't finish it. Loved the idea of it. These two poetic stories, one coming from the front of the book, one coming from the back, reversing and hitting and echoing one another and mirroring one another to tell this love story. But in practice, I couldn't do it. And it's more recent, The Familiar, which is currently five volumes of several hundred pages each, and planned, I believe, is a 27-volume story that barely any time passes. It was like the worst of the excess of Stephen King in his later days, my reading him. I mean, he's still around, but I didn't read much King after The Dark Tower ended. My interest had waned. And reading, for example, the opening of Cell, or the opening of The Dome, where he takes page after page after page to explain a single moment. It's a nice idea, but reading it, I just wasn't there anymore. As opposed to, but if Navidson is no longer holding onto the rope, what could possibly be pulling rest into the, and this is at the bottom of the page, the only text on the page, 
and on the next page, upside down, at the top of the page. Top. Oh. He turns the reading experience into something different than a book. You're turning pages faster because you have to because there's fewer words. You're turning pages slower because there's more words and they're going in multiple directions. Or he's creating imagery out of the words. All work, no play makes Jack a dull boy and all that. And movies do this. When they do it well, it is amazing. Like the whole Pauline Kale bit, and I'm thinking of ending things. The poem in the same. Why do I do movies by minutes? Why did I do the Groundhog Day project? Because I want to sit and look at a piece of a movie and examine it and examine it and examine it and examine my examining it and think about what it means. Because why not? Groundhog Day project, day 173. Who dreams of you at night? The Nash 2011 relies on John Izod's 2000 Journal of Analytical Psychology essay, Active Imagination and the Analysis of Film, in linking the viewing of film to the process of dreaming. Izod's original piece is interesting in that he argues screen fiction has the potential to help the individual grow in self-awareness because experience and effects aroused by fictions can resemble being drawn into a rehearsal for a possible imagined future that just might, but more likely never will, occur in the individual's life in the real world. The interesting thing here is that Izod's description here implies that dreams lead to self-awareness. I like the idea of that. And maybe it seems obvious, but of course there's still the possibility that dreams are simply the random firing of synapses as the body shuts down and lets the mind have some fun. But even if, and I'd wager that is a big if, dreams are random, the specific contents still have to come from the material we've got stored away in our brains. So there would have to be something in each dream that would link at least indirectly to who and what we are. I've actually cited Izod through Banesh before, quoting the following. For viewers, no less than for Phil, an imprint remains, as during the film the audience members introject or take in its psychic content including symbols, images, and narrative, as well as projecting individual personal concerns. After the film, if it is particularly resonant, the process continues as the film plays on in the viewer's mind. A personal edition of the film is thus created and is assimilated into the psyche of the viewer. Banesh, 2011. Izod specifically suggests, a lowering of the level of consciousness is experienced in the dark warmth and security of the cinema as it unreels its manifold diversions, its sumptuous images and sounds. Its compelling characters and stories arouse many emotions and stir drives of which the individual may be unconscious. Because of the fictionality of their object, whatever the specific nature of these emotions, fear, anger, desire, wonder, horror, they are usually experienced as virtual rather than actual, and therefore ultimately as pleasurable. Isa 2000 I don't know if the reality of this notion that we experience film as we do dreams, is accurate, but it seems a reasonable metaphor. A great film will certainly play back in our heads afterward. Groundhog Day certainly does for me. Izod suggests full engagement with a symbolic film has no less potential than to change individuals' consciousness. It can alter the way they feel and think about themselves or the world. Izod quotes Jung in defining the visionary text, which I would argue Groundhog Day is one. Jung says, it can be a revelation whose heights and depths are beyond our fathoming or a vision of beauty that we can never put into words. Most works of art never rend the curtain that veils the cosmos. They do not exceed the bounds of our human capacities. But the primordial experiences rend from top to bottom the curtain upon which is painted the picture of an ordered world and allow a glimpse into the unfathomable abyss of the unborn and of things yet to be. Isaiah 2000, citing Young, 1950. Groundhog Day does indeed rend the curtain that veils the cosmos, I would say. Which is interesting because I was asked a few nights ago, why Groundhog Day? Followed by a line implying it's a film with no depth. And people who don't read this blog regularly ask me. And people who don't listen to the show, I suppose. Except no one asks me. What I write about. Clearly they haven't done what Izod suggests we all do. And certainly not consciously. They haven't re-examined the film in their heads. I was working on notes for 5 Minute Arrival, a show I'm doing with my wife. 
just yesterday, in an upcoming episode. At the time, you'll first be able to hear this. It'll be sometime next month. I mean, it's 31 to 35. I was thinking about the heptapods as hands of a larger figure, like the screen and the film, the shape of the monolith, no less, but white instead of black, or gray, murky, foggy. It's more like a curtain where hands come down to play in front of humans that are so insignificant to them. Like God himself, or Galactus, or whatever. Something bigger than us. And I feel there's a religious overtone coming in Arrival that I didn't think about much before, but it will come up going slower. That's what this is. You take a film and slow it down. You take a book, write a report on it. The things they make you do in English class and literature class. and You think about it, and think about it, and think about thinking about it. 2001, A Space Odyssey begins with a black screen, but it's not a blank screen. I think I'm right about this. It was an observation I had when I watched the movie in the theater when it was back in IMAX a year or two ago. They didn't just put blank screen up. They filmed a black screen, and it was vibrating, and it was moving. It's pulling us into the film. It's letting us know that we need to be patient. We need to wait. We need to slow down and let things happen. Because not every movie is made to be experienced quickly. Not every movie is made to be experienced shallowly for fun. About ten months ago, I saw my last movie in a theater. It was Onward, Pixar movie. I talked about it last week, but I didn't talk about the idea that what if that's the last time I ever saw a movie in a theater? Do I care? I mean, I care, but you get a big enough TV, good enough sound system. Watching a movie at home can be easier, better. But some movies, I wonder, is the audience the point? Is this big communal experience the point? Can we know on opening streaming day for a new film that all the people watching it are just like they're in a giant big theater that covers the world? We're all sitting there together. Maybe there's distractions. Maybe there's noises in your house, your apartment. Cats fighting. Kids busy with their own things. Maybe need to pause to go to the bathroom. And you can pause to go to the bathroom. You don't have to miss anything. But it does mess with the flow. Back to Groundhog Day. If you are one of those people who don't re-examine the film in your heads, I would recommend that you do think about film after you watch it. Citing Hillman, 1990, Izod tells us, What Hillman advocates is naked, emotionally unguarded self-exposure to the symbol, which should be encountered and watched as if it were alive, almost like a person. Banash says the next step, after one has built that personal edition of a film in one's head, is to watch the movie again, comparing that imagined text with the original text to see what is legitimate and what must be discarded. Since I've already touched on Jung today, I suppose now is as good a time as any to bring back Nietzsche. Specifically, I'd cite his notion of eternal recurrence. What Banesh, by way of Izod, is suggesting a researcher do with the text, in this instance a film, is what Nietzsche might say we should all do with our lives every day. Life shouldn't be some passive thing we let happen around us, nor really should the viewing of a film be. Every act should be deliberate, every act as revealing of self as our dreams may be. That isn't to say that all acts will end up being good, of course. Being deliberate does not mean we will never make mistakes or do regrettable things. But at least, if we are deliberate in the doing, we can also be deliberate in making amends if it comes to that. I will end today by suggesting that there is a song missing from Groundhog Day. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Today's reason to repeat a day forever. To dream and to live and know that everything I do is a reality that continues on, even if I do not. Perfect. Thank you for listening. This has been Cock and Bull Movie Talk. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, or Facebook at Cock and Bull Minute, or check LemonDrops.com for links. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. 
Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a Mandalorian. Why would you create such an abomination? This is the weapon of a coward. The, uh, it's a passport. Stuff that dreams are made of. Cut. That's a wrap. It's over, Johnny. It's over! Nothing is over! Nothing! You just don't turn it off! Shut up! Shut the fuck! You're all right to take shut up! Will you shut up! Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up! You're still here? Shut up! Now! It's over. Go home. Go.